Well, welcome again to the Springs. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. Uh, I serve as the lead pastor here. And today we start a new series called Unfiltered. Uh, We are doing this in tandem with our campus ministry, the same topic every week in our growth groups and our church service in their campus night. And we are doing basically this. We are taking big questions that our culture is asking, and we're providing honest answers. Big questions, honest answers. Now, over the next four weeks, we're going to answer questions like, how can a loving God send people to hell? Big questions, right? How could God allow suffering? Isn't Christianity regressive and repressive? Now, today's question is this. We're going to spend the next 30 minutes or so answering, examining this question. Aren't all religions the same? Aren't all religions the same? Another way of asking this question is, is there really just one way to heaven? Is there really just one thing that I can believe? Is it really that exclusive? That's the question that we're carefully examining today. We live in a day that there is not just a a relativism and pluralism, but it's zealous. Seems ironic that you could be zealous about believing in everything at once. Some would say it's like believing in nothing at all. So how could you be zealous about it? But there is a zealous pluralism and relativism. You can see it through, uh, uh, Morgan Freeman has this new documentary out that's called The Story of God. It's, it shows our culture's desperate desire to paint all beliefs as essentially the same beliefs. But our effort to try to unify and, and kind of make peaceable all different beliefs is not the same as essentially saying that all different beliefs are essentially the same beliefs. It's good for us to want to live at peace with one another, to coexist. All the things that those bumper stickers would say, but how? Can believing in, uh, that everything is the true and mutually validating at the same time, that everything is true at the same time, actually get us to a place where we live at peace with one another? That's really the question. It's a functional and an important question. And if pluralism is true then there's nothing harmful about documentaries like this. But if it's not true, then all we're doing is pushing people to rest in a plurality of lies and to rest unhinged from the God who wants to save us. Essentially, we're trying to comfort people and in our comfort, we're condemning people. And trying to be nice all the while. Is there just one true religion? Is that a question that ever pops up anywhere? We want to provide an honest answer to this question. Many of us have heard uh, the the old Indian parable. If you've ever gone to Philosophy 101, uh, there's that parable. I'm going to do my best not to butcher it. But raise your hand if you've ever heard about the, the blind men and the elephant. Okay? So essentially, here it is. There's, there's a bunch of blind men, and they, having never seen or, or been in the presence of an elephant, 
they all, from various perspectives, try to examine this elephant to say what it is. And one guy goes up to it and says, oh, what this is, this object is a wall because it's flat. He's, he's taking, touching the side of the elephant, okay? So it's a wall. I believe it. That's my absolute truth to me. The other guy goes to the leg of the elephant and says, oh, this thing is a tree. It's not a wall. It's a tree because he's, he's grasping around the, around the leg thinking it's a trunk. Another person goes to the uh, the, the trunk of the elephant thinks, oh, this is a snake. You guys think it's a wall and it's a snake. And, and you see the, the, the moral of the story, the narrator twists, the, that ending twist is this. It's that all different perspectives have a part of the truth. We're all just blind and our portions of the truth are all equally valid at the same time is essentially the, the assertion made by this allegory. The only problem is this, that there's one very important person in this story that's not blind, and that's the narrator. There is a, a, a humility technically that's given by this story, but really there is a condescending tone with the assumption that there's one person who sees what everyone else with their exclusive claims, Muslims, Jews, Christians, all those people are the blind people. Leslie Newbigin is a missionary uh, to various parts of the East, and he says this in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. He says, there is a, an appearance to humility, of humility in the protestation, the assertion that truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp. But if this is used to invalidate all claims to discern the truth, it is in fact an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. We have to ask, what is the vantage ground from which you claim to be able to relativize these scriptures? So I'm going to go into talking about these scriptures. And I'm going to spend the next... 20 or so minutes unpacking the scriptures we've read for two basic reasons. I want you to know that I am not unbiased when we talk about do all religions save? Do all, do, do, is there equal validity in various truth claims? I am not unbiased and neither are you and neither is anyone. In fact, the most biased people are the people that claim they're not biased. Here's the reason why I am not biased. I'm not unbiased. I am biased. It's because I was blind and through no work of my own, I now see Jesus. I was a wretch. I was a normal, perverse, manipulative, addicted, selfish person who went to church to make myself feel better about the things that I had no intention nor power of changing a religious hypocrite. And Jesus met me there. And I've never been the same. He used a campus ministry, much like the campus ministry that we support in this church. And he showed me the mercy that only comes from a person living a perfect life and dying a death that we deserve for our imperfect lives. I'm not unbiased. I want to show you what Jesus says about himself because I can argue 
all day. This is my second reason why I want to only spend my time, the rest of my time, unpacking what we read. I can argue all day for Jesus, but you know who argues the best for Jesus? Jesus. He doesn't need any validation from us because his words are self-validating. So chapter 14, verse 1, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Why would Jesus say, let not your hearts be troubled? I mean, let's just start with a basic thing. What would cause you to be troubled in your heart? What would cause you to have uh, anxieties that, that mount up in a, in a state of your heart that's anything but peaceful? What troubles you today? He says, let not your hearts be troubled here in John chapter 14. And he says it to you today. Let not your hearts be troubled That's what he says. Now, when he spoke this little context, this was at the Last Supper, the famous Passover meal the night before he would go to the cross. And these men that he's been walking with for uh, three years, he's been kind of telling them things over the last several days about his imminent departure. And their savior, their king, their God, who many of them understood to be, their Messiah is telling them, hey, I'm about to get killed. I'm about to go away. Troubling, right? This is troubling. If you hear these things, you're gonna, it's hard not to let your heart be troubled. So he's telling them these things. I can only imagine what they're feeling. And I would say, though, that it's not just his imminent departure that they're troubled about. They had some other trouble about their part in the whole mess that was to come. So at this dinner, right before this, here's what happens. He's he's washing the disciples' feet, and then he right away says, one of y'all is going to betray me. I mean, talk about an awkward dinner, right? One of y'all is going to betray me. And then they're like, who is it? It's like, oh, it's you. And it's Judas. And he's like, Jesus says to Judas, go do what you need to do. And Judas leaves, right? And it's super awkward. And Jesus, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you that you would love one another. And these people are like, what? Hold on, let me process this. He says, I am going away. You will seek me and you will not find me. I am going So this is a very awkward moment. They're trying to have a good Passover dinner. They're like, Jesus, this is like the worst Passover ever. You're kind of like killing the mood here. And so Peter decides he's going to try to relieve an awkward moment by saying something nice, right? And it makes it way more awkward. I can totally relate to this. Any of y'all who know me personally know I stick my foot in my mouth in the moments when I'm trying to relieve tension. This is exactly what happens with Peter. Verse 36 of chapter 13, Simon Peter said to Jesus, says, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Super veiled. veiled. So Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly. Truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow before you have denied me three times. Which happened. But think about this. 
the very next thing he says is he turns to everyone and says, let not your hearts be troubled. I mean, this is difficult. He's talking about how one dude just is about to betray him, and then the other hero in the story here, or the dude he thinks he's a hero, is like, man, I'll lay down my life for you. And he's like, actually, you're a mess too. All of them would figure out that, hey, they're all a mess. We're all a mess. We're all Judas. We're all betrayers. And he says to us, let not your hearts be troubled. This is a very strange moment. And I've read over this this chapter so many times and not considered the weight that must be in the room here. Peter has this boastful self-confidence that you know, Jesus, things might, you might say things are going bad, but you know what? We have hope. Why? Because of me. I, I, I'll never leave you. I've got, I've got zeal. I've got me some religion. And this question that we still ask today, and it's a very valid question, do all religions, uh, are they all the same? Let me tell you what most religions are the same in. They're all man's boastful attempt to try to get to God, to earn his favor. I'll sacrifice for you. I'll do this. I'll pray five times a day. I'll go to church three times a week. I'll do this for you. I'll give this much money. I'll do this. I will get to God because I'm pretty good. Many of us, it's about what we don't do, right? I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I, I've heard people say before, I, I'm a Christian because I don't do this, I don't do that, I never drink that unless it's kind of like on someone's birthday, I don't do this. All these things are man-centered boasts and they're an offense to God. All religions are man's attempt, futile, boastful attempt to get to God. But what Jesus is doing and why he's telling us, don't be troubled, is very different than man-made religion. It's man, it's not man's attempt to get to God, it's God making a way to us. Jesus is saying, you who fail me, don't be troubled. Isn't that what most troubles us so often? It's not the external things, it's not the financial things, the relational things, as if they were kind of disconnected from us, those things out there. It's the things we know we've done. It's the imminent guilt that we carry, knowing that we're guilty before God. And God says, you're all, even in your religion, in your zeal, you're abandoning me, but but don't be troubled. We carry around this guilt this guilt of the things that we've done in our past, but the, the habits that we know are still manifesting in our present and the fears about them continuing to manifest in our future. And Jesus is saying, let not your hearts be troubled, beloved. So what's the remedy? Let not your hearts be troubled. Instead, work. Instead, devote yourself to action. No, it's none of those things. Again, this is what separates faith in Jesus from man-made religion. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe. Believe 
in God. Believe also in me. Jesus in this is asserting believing in God is believing in me because I am God. This belief thing is everything. Comes full circle at the end of our passage and he says, verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is saying, you can test me. You can test me. If I don't rise from the dead, then you can forget about me, essentially. Watch my works, he's saying. See if I'm comparable to anything else that you would feel or think or believe in. Believe me, he's saying. Don't believe yourself. Don't believe in your best efforts to try to remedy your past or to sacrifice for your God. When you are just nothing but a betrayer, you can be a beloved one. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is saying to us, all y'all stink. All y'all don't measure up to my standards. You have infinite reasons to be troubled by things on earth. Things in your own soul. But there's one reason that's trumps all those other reasons, and that is me. Believe me. This whole book is written about believing in God. In fact, at the very end of of John, I'm just going to share with you, John gives a reason for why he writes this book, this whole gospel account. He says, verse 31 of chapter 20, these things, meaning this gospel account, they're written to you so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay, so you believe in Jesus. What else do we need to get to heaven? Nothing. It's a scandal. Why would anyone reject this? Because in my boastful, pride-centered person, I want to believe that I can do something to get to God instead of just die to that and believe. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, chapter 14. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You can't get to God. But the gospel is that God has gotten to you and your only thing you can do is believe. Believe in what he says about you and what he does for you. How many ways are there for man to get to God? Zero. But he comes to us and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. And through believing you have life. Verse 2 I'm going to move a little faster. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, this is, this is bridegroom language. He's saying, I, I, I've prepared a, I'm preparing a, a place for you. This is tender 
language spoken by the glorious bridegroom, Jesus, to his bride, the church. That's us. Men, we're the bride of Christ. And he's speaking tenderly to us, saying, have I not prepared a place for you? Have I not told you this? Have I not promised you that we have all these things in our future together? Look, I know it's easy to, to, to be troubled, but would you believe in me? Remember what I said. Remember the promise that I have for us. And remember, this isn't just a, a man speaking to his betrothed. This is, a, this is the groom who's speaking to his betrothed who's in the process of cheating on him. Think about that for a second. A spouse is cheating on another spouse and the one who is cheated on is comforting the cheater, which is you and me, and saying, let not your heart be troubled. Don't you know that I've prepared a place for you? For you, in this place that you dwell in, you'll never be the cheater any longer. You'll be the beloved one, the forgiven one. This is the tender voice that he's speaking with. I have to confess before I move on to to verses 5 and 6 that for a long period of my Christian life, I would hijack the middle part of this verse and use... I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says that if you don't have him, you're going to hell. And I would speak it not tenderly. Jesus is saying these things to comfort us who've betrayed him. And he's saying, I am making a way for you. I am that way. I am the truth and I am the life. And he's speaking it tenderly to people who've cheated against him and who he's in the process of restoring. If you, uh, if you have a habit of taking this verse, it's a famous verse and rightly so, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And if you have a habit like me where you speak it less than tenderly to others, stop it. Slow down and read the Bible and let the Bible read you. Jesus is saying, you have become my enemy and I'm making a place for you because of where I'm going. This causes us to ask the question, well, what's this place he's talking about? Thank you for asking. Let's go on. Verse 3 says, and if I go to play, pre- prepare a place for you, I'll come again. Jesus is not talking about ascending into heaven and coming back in the second coming. He's promised that elsewhere. What he's talking about here is he is going to prepare a place for you and me by going to the cross. He's lived the life that we should have lived. The reason why you can't die on the cross to pay for someone else's sins is because you deserve to die on the cross just like I do. It doesn't pay for anyone's sins except for yours. Jesus lived a perfect life, infinitely perfect. And then he decided to trade the consequences of his perfection for the consequences for our imperfection. And he went to the cross to pay the penalty so that we could have a place in the presence of God. Why did he go to, to prepare this place? Because we locked ourselves out of this place. And the door is sealed and shut. 
if we were to try to enter this place, the, the burning glory of God would consume us because we're unholy and he is holy. But Jesus in his holiness goes to remedy this problem and he goes to the cross to pay the penalty for our unholiness to absolve the wrath of God on our behalf. When we seek to satisfy our needs with our sin and we just create more problems, more death and destruction, and then we blame it on other people. We blame all the evil on other people, the other politicians, other uh, uh, famous people, our fathers, and we continue to sin and create a multiplication of wrath. And Jesus says, I'm preparing a place for you. And he goes to the cross and he sheds his blood so that sinful people could be covered by his sinless perfection and blood. And now there is a place to be restored. There is the door that has been locked shut by our sin, has been opened by his sinlessness and this is not hypothetical. This is demonstrated specifically by the resurrection of the dead. He rose again from the dead and he opened the door to restoring life to dead people like you and me. This is the place that he's talking about. The place that he's talking about isn't just uh, a geographical place. When he says that I go to prepare a place for you, for you who betray me, for you who try to come up with alternate truths where, where you say, oh, I'm pretty much a good person and your truth assertion about your goodness stands as a fortress against my goodness. He's saying, I'm a greater truth than that. I am the, the one who forgives you for that lie. And when you try to satisfy your life with other things, other idols, other hopes, he says, I still prepare a place where you can have true life in me. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. The place that he prepares for us, he goes to the cross, that place is himself. It seems strange to say it like that, but let me just say what, repeat what Jesus says. He says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. He doesn't say to come again to take you there. He says in verse 3, I will come again to take you to myself. People ask, what's heaven like? What's heaven like? And there's valid things, even in the Bible, it says like there's streets of gold, right? There's, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's mansions. There's all sorts of great stuff in heaven. But, you know, heaven is like Jesus, When, you, when you're empty on peace, you're full of anxiety, in Jesus, you find acceptance where you don't have to continue to suppress your pain and hide your shame, but everything's exposed and everything is forgiven and you don't have to hide anymore and there's this overwhelming peace and joy. That's what heaven is. The gold streets, those are just aesthetics. The essence of heaven 
is who Jesus is. That's the place that he prepares for us, is the place in his presence where we can be before the Father with no guilt and no shame, no trouble weighing down our hearts. It's the essence of all exhilaration when, when you can easily get bored and we try to, to go to these stinking rectangles to entertain ourselves and it's just uh, insatiating. It never allows ourselves to have any sort of meaningful anything. Jesus is the exhilaration and the adventure and the eternal wonder. He's the only one who can satisfy all our hungers and simultaneously give us greater hungers. What's heaven like? Heaven is like Jesus. And he says, you've been locked out of it, but I go to prepare a place for you and I'm coming back. I'm going to rise again from the dead and take you to that place, but it's me. I am that place. I will not leave you. I'm taking you to myself, he says. This place where he in his eternity past has been exhilarated and united with peace and joy with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's saying that unity, that homeness, that joy, I'm restoring and letting you into that place. And because I've shed my blood for you, you will not be burned up by the holiness and the glory of it. You'll be lifted up in it. And the joy is more exhilarating than anything else. You'll be safe in the Father's arms. I am in the Father and the Father will be with you and you'll be restored. And he even goes on. I'm going to read a few verses after this. Verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the place that Jesus prepares for us where we're not just trying to get to him. He's living inside of us and driving us and coming out of us with words of knowledge and power and preaching and boldness. And it's a life of adventure where we are are driven by his very words and we're driven to do things like he does because we're with him. That's the place that he's prepared for us. Now, is he still preparing it? No. It's already, it's already prepared for you. Jesus hung on the cross, and in his final breath, he said, it is finished. The place has been prepared. The veil that separates man and God has been torn. And if you would say, I'm choosing not to be troubled, I'm choosing to believe in you. Then a world of joy will swallow up your sorrow. A world of boldness will swallow up your timidity. People say, how can you say there's only one way to heaven? I say, how can there be any way for someone like me? Would you pray?